Shabbat Shalom, everyone, and welcome to our second lesson of Women's Torah Studies. Uh, today we're going to continue our studies, and uh, let's have a look at what we are studying today. But before that, let's start in prayer. So, Abinu Malkenu, Abba Father, we ask you to receive your wisdom from above, from your throne, that you might give us a new vision, a new knowledge, a new understanding, a deepest understanding of who you are in the Moshiach of Israel. In the name of the Moshiach Yeshua. Amen. So, today we are going to speak about Jot and Tittle, which are details we can find in our everyday life. When we uh, read something and we study something like the Torah that is full of details and various levels of understanding, we can uh, pay attention to every single detail that has a meaning. So let's look at our journey that is continuing with uh, the Moshiach Yeshua that is overlooking the Lake Galilee and it remains seated with a circle of 12 Talmudim, 12 disciples around him while he continues his teaching. And as we know, uh, there is a famous structure uh, belonging to the Catholic Church. It's called the Church of the Beatitudes that preserves the, the traditional location of the site where Yeshua HaMashiach delivered the Sermon on the Mount we spoke about last week. And today, in our second lesson, we are also going to give you personal insight coming from the scripture we are studying together and even if uh, we have never been uh, to the Galilee or stood upon that particular hill we are so blessed to be able to number ourselves among his Talmudim as we have received his teaching amen so this teaching is really a blessing for all of us and uh, I always suggest every each one of you and each one of you to participate uh, studying each lesson through our student guide and um, also answering questions which are going to come up during, uh, during the lesson also today and to watch this teaching and review your thoughts, your comments, your feedback, which might closely um, find an answer through the teaching and make some questions at the end of your uh, studying so you can also share your thoughts, your comments and feedback with all of us through our weekly meeting as a part of our uh, weekly connection meeting and also this is a chance to fellowship with other believers in Yeshua and uh, have new friends so make new friends and uh, also fellowship with us amen so let's start this uh, second lesson for our second week second Shabbat and this week is the week two in the Sermon on the Mount uh, we are going to have a great and encouraging teaching for all of you and I invite you all friends and family Mishpachot to join us in this teaching during this study. This is an opportunity also to teach others which are in need of learning the Torah with you wherever you are. You are not alone but you're part of our family in the Moshiach Yeshua. So wherever you are, you can connect with us, you can contact us via email or via messenger, social media, uh, WhatsApp, in any way you can contact with us and join our family. 
men in the Moshiach. So we always suggest also if you're able to make it to join us in person because we believe despite the COVID-19 that has created much difficulty to uh, gather together, we believe that meeting in person is always our priority. But whenever you are not able, you can always join us online and be part of our family online. I mean, as a mishpakot, as a congregation, and as ministry, you're always part of our family, wherever you are. So, however, there are times when online access and meetings are necessary for individual students or your entire misprocot, like it was last year for the entire year, we couldn't meet in person. And right now we are just starting to meet up again in the open spaces. In Italy is not allowed to gather as a congregation yet. So we are allowed to celebrate Yeshua in the open space. And I always suggest you to also uh, create your own account under uh, our uh, Mishpaka, that is a big <laughs> network, and uh, be part of our family and belong to something that is bigger than yourself. This is something I've been learning since the beginning. I received the redemption in the Moshiach. Amen. So it's really important to be uh, continuing uh, the the work of Hashem in us, who's always encouraging us through the studies together and also to work together during the week and be part of the weekly connection teaching and checking out and fellowship with others. So this all can be part of a journey we all do together. So let's look at this lesson writing. Today we are going to uh, speak about Matthew chapter 5 verse 17 through 30. 30, I'm sorry, 30. And I would suggest you to uh, open your Bible and read while we are speaking about it. So you can always review in your language that I always suggest to have on your side. I do the same. I have <laughs> lots of different Bibles. I have the Italian Bible on the side, the English one on the other. I have the Hebrew Bible on one side. So many different Bibles at the same time. And we never finish to learn. So it's good to have as many resources we can and choose the one that is more comfortable for us to learn from. So if it's easier for you to learn from your own first language native language that's the way you want to do it you're you do not force yourself to do something that might be just a, um, a, an obstacle to your learning amen so let's look at the lesson today uh, as a second week uh, we continue with our second lesson on the Sermon on the Mount and Yeshua is teaching his Talmudim, his disciples, how to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world through their mitz, uh, mitzvot, which are the good deeds in Hebrew. And he wants them to become a point of reference for change. So a change maker <laughs> that can lead the nation of Israel to repentance, to redemption, and avert the looming hour of judgment and the destruction of Jerusalem and the beginning of a new exile. So Yeshua Hamashiach warns his Talmudim not to imagine that his teaching in some way cancels the Torah or that he in any way abrogates uh, the authority of God's law. On the contrary, he intends to get to the heart of the Torah's commandments and teach is the uh, is Talmudim how to internalize them. Whoever keeps God's commandments and teaches others to do so as well will be considered great in the kingdom of heaven. But this high calling requires more than just a pretense of religious piety. 
So his Talmudim must keep God's commandments in thought and speech as well as deed. For example, it's not sufficient to merely abstain from murder while harboring hatred in the heart or acting out with unkind words, slander and insult. That type of lip service, pity, is not sufficient to merit the messianic era. Likewise, the prohibition on adultery goes beyond merely abstaining from breaches of marital fidelity. It calls upon us to control our eyes and thoughts, lest they lead our hands and feet into sin. So with this kind of teachings like like Yeshua did not abolish, absolutely did not abolish the Torah. Instead, he fulfilled the Torah by revealing its inner intention. Amen. And this is a really important point of uh, reference we want to take a look at because sometimes there are people saying things which are not written in the Torah <laughs> and they become false teaching so we don't want that we don't want to receive false teaching and we do not want to say false things which are not part of our, our Torah amen so as we continue uh, the lesson we are going to have some focus sections Uh, and we're going to speak about, first of all, the Torah and the prophets. So let's uh, pray before starting the section number one. And the prayer is called Areni Makesher. That means I hereby join. So I hereby join myself. To the master Yeshua the Moshiach the righteous one who is the bread of life and the true light the source of eternal redemption that is salvation for all those who fear him like a branch that remains in a vine so may I remain in him just as he also remains in the father in Abba and the father in him in order that they may remain in us may the grace of Yeshua HaMashiach Jesus the Messiah the Chesed of Hashem our God and the fellowship of the Ruach HaKodesh the Holy One the Holy Spirit abound in to us. So let's speak about the Torah and the prophets. The chapter 5 of the book of Matthew at the verse 17 says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. So the Torah is the law of Moses. We have the five books, Genesis, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and it consists of God's commandments to his people Israel. Any prophet or would-be Messiah who breaks the Torah and teaches others to do so, as well as, as well disqualifies himself, the Torah says, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet. He has counseled rebellion, against the Lord your God to seduce you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk and this is written in Deuteronomy 13 verse 3 to 5 this explains why Yeshua HaMashiach Jesus the Messiah opponents were so eager to label him as a Shabbat breaker or heretic and Yeshua forbade his Talmudim, his disciple, from even thinking that he came to abolish the Torah. How much more so should we be forbidden to teach the abolishment of the Torah as a theological pillar of doctrine? The Torah is Hashem's unchanging revelation and standard of law until the end of time, until heaven and earth pass away, and it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. And this is written in Luke 
chapter 16, verse 17. When the Moshiach Yeshua said, Do not think that I came to abolish the Torah, the expression I came to functions idiomatically in Hebrew to express purpose or intention. So he was speaking about the purpose of his teaching. Do not think my teaching is intended to diminish the Torah. My intention is not to abolish the Torah of Moses, but to establish it. And here will follow a question and answer time. So let's go ahead and let's speak about the second part of the teaching, as the question and answer will be part of your weekly study in your home group. Abolishing the Torah. Why would anyone assume that the rabbi from Nazareth intended to abolish the law or the prophets in the first place? There are a few possibilities. Perhaps some of his critics charged that the healings he performed on the Shabbat undetermined the Torah's authority. If Yeshua's opponents could prove him to be a Torah breaker, they could discredit his ministry and his claims. If they could prove that his teaching diminished the Torah's authority, they could dismiss him as erratic. To counter their charges, the Moshiach Yeshua declared the validity of the Torah and the prophets. So the whole Tanakh, amen, that is the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. Another explanation might have to do with messianic expectations. Some people assume that when the Messiah comes, he would establish himself as a new lawgiver and replace the Torah of Moses with the new Torah of Messiah. As it says in Isaiah, the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law in Isaiah 42 verse 4. According to this belief, the Torah that goes forth from Zion in the Messianic era will be a new Torah that makes the old one obsolete. The sages explains that the Messiah will reveal a new Torah, but that the new Torah of Messiah will not abolish the Torah of Moses. Instead, the Messiah will fulfill the inner meaning of the law of Moses, explain its deepest meaning, deepest secrets, dispel misinterpretations, clarify its intentions, and resolve all uncertainties. Another explanation but might be inferred from Yeshua's teaching about the kingdom. He taught that the kingdom brings a complete reversal of the value systems of the world. The first become last, and the last become first. The hungry are well-fed, and the well-fed go hungry. Mourners are comforted, while those who laugh now will mourn. The poor receive the kingdom of heaven, the rich enter only with difficulty. The least in the age will be the great in the kingdom. So, will the Torah be overturned as well? Well, Yeshua explains that the Torah is an exception to the rule of reversals. Those who keep the least of the Torah's commandments in this age will be great in the kingdom. And also for these questions for the second part of our studies, I would suggest you to look at the questions and answers in your weekly meeting. So let's continue with the third part of the teaching. What's the meaning of fulfilling the Torah? Yeshua said that he did not come to abolish the Torah or the prophets, but to fulfill. And this is written in Matthew 5 verse 17. Sometimes Yeshua's words about fulfilling the Torah are misunderstood by modern readers to mean that Yeshua fulfilled the law by living a sinless life so that others after him would no longer need to observe the commandments in the law. But this is not true. According to this idea, Yeshua abolishes the law by fulfilling it. 
It's a self-contradictory explanation based upon several faulty premises. So the meaning of the word abolish should be obvious. To abolish is to destroy, discard, or overturn something. The meaning of fulfill is a little more ambiguous. How do we, how do we fulfill the Torah? In this context, fulfill does not mean to add to the Torah, replace the old Torah with a new higher law, replace the Torah with a new law of love, or even to fulfill the prophetic content of the Torah. Instead, fulfill must be understood as the opposite of abolish. Rabbinic literature reveals hundreds of parallels in which the term fulfill the Torah refers expressly to obeying the Torah or demonstrating how the Torah is to be properly obeyed. For example, in the saying of the fathers, the Pirkei Avot, and it says, whoever fulfills the Torah in poverty will fulfill it later on in wealth. And whoever abolishes the Torah in wealth will abolish it later in poverty. So the sages often argued how to interpret the commandments properly. A rabbi who misinterpreted the Torah was said to be abolishing it. A rabbi who properly interpreted the Torah was said to be fulfilling it. So by using the terms abolish and fulfill, Yeshua HaMashiach told his Talmudim that he interprets the Torah correctly. In Matthew 5.17, Yeshua endorsed the ongoing and changing authority and validity of the Torah of Moses in the strongest possible language. He endorsed the whole Torah, not just the Ten Commandments, the rest of the Gospel epistles epistles i'm sorry should be interpreted in light of his emphatic statement and the reminder of the sermon on the mount should be understood as his interpretation of the unchanging and enduring torah so yeshua taught that he did not come to abolish the torah one yacht or one tittle shall no wise pass from the law and this is written in Matthew 5 verse 18 so the smallest uh, detail in the Hebrew letter, letter we say the letter Yod is only the size of an apostrophe the, ti uh, the title probably refers to the, the little detail the single letter or to the strokes of a single letter which distinguish similar looking letters from one another. So Yeshua's word alludes to the careful tradition, the, the writing tradition of Judaism. The traditional writing considers a Torah scroll with a single defective letter invalid. According to an old Jewish story, the King Solomon tried to change the Torah by editing the text of the Deuteronomy. He erased the single letter Yod from the scroll to change the meaning of one single word. By changing that single Yod, that little detail was basically cancelling the prohibition on multiplying wives. And this is a very small but big change in the lives of many. <laughs> so this is written in Deuteronomy 17, verse 17, that I would suggest you to take a look at. At that time, the little yod from the word multiply, yarbe, in Deuteronomy 17, verse 17, ascended on high and prostrated itself before the Holy One, blessed be He, and said, Master of the universe, did you not say that no letter shall ever be abolished from the Torah? Behold, now Solomon has a reason and abolished one. Who knows? Today he has abolished one letter, tomorrow he will abolish another until the whole Torah will be abolished. The Holy One, blessed be He, replied, Solomon and a thousand him, like him, will pass away, but the smallest tittle 
will not be erased from you. And this is part of the Midrash Rabbah. So Yeshua told this Talmudim, not even the smallest yacht or tittle would pass from the Torah until all is accomplished. At what point does that happen? And when will all be accomplished? Well, teachers sometimes try to reverse Yeshua's teaching about the ongoing authority of the Torah. Some way that the words, until all is accomplished, indicate that the Torah endured until Yeshua accomplished all things by his death on the cross of execution, of Roman execution. I'm sorry. Others explain it to refer to the Torah's ongoing validity until Yeshua accomplished all things by his perfect obedience to it. So still others suggest the Torah remained until the destruction of the temple. These interpretations create smoke and mirrors to obscure the clear meaning. The phrase until all is accomplished stands parallel to the phrase until heaven and earth pass away. In other words, the validity, authority, and unchanging revelation of the Torah will continue until this present world is swallowed up into the new heavens and the new earth of the world to come, that day when everything will have been accomplished. And this is the end of the section three of our study. So even here we have the questions and answers part that will be part of your weekly home group meeting. So let's go ahead and let's speak about the list in the kingdom. Whoever then annuls one of the list of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called list in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, it shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And this is written in Matthew 5, verse 19. So Yeshua said that he did not come to abolish the Torah. Amen. And this is really important. Or the prophets but to fulfill them that is to observe them and correctly interpret them moreover he warned his Talmudim not to annul a commandment or to dissuade others from observing them keep in mind that he was speaking exclusively to Jews he didn't speak to Gentiles he was speaking to the Jews so there was no need for him to add any other detail, any other explanation about commandments that do not pertain directly to Gentiles. He did not need to distinguish between Jewish, uh, Jewish obligations to the covenant and the universal obligation to Hashem, God's ethical and moral standards, because there were no Gentiles present for the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, almost all of Yeshua's words were addressed directly to Jewish people. Matthew 15 verse 24, and this is very important to know about. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Therefore, a Matthew 5 verse 19 should not be used to force Gentile disciples to adopt specifically Jewish obligations, such as the Jewish dietary laws, the biblical calendar, or Jewish identity markers like ritual garb. For example, a Gentile disciple who disregards the Torah's prohibition on wearing garments made of two types of material mixed together, that is written in Leviticus 19 verse 19, need not fear being relegated to the status of least in the kingdom of heaven. The Moshiach Yeshua told his Talmudim that they were to be 
very careful in keeping both the smaller commandments and the greater commandments, even the seemingly inconsequential ones. For example, the Moshiach praises the Pharisees for tithing even their mean deal and cumin. Matthew 23, verse 23, the Talmud compares one of the greatest commandments, honor your father and mother, Exodus 20, verse 12, with one of the least of the commandments, you shall not take the mother with the young, that is written in the Deuteronomy 22, verse 6, and points out that the reward for both commandments is identical, that it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days. Perhaps this is why rabbis say, be as scrupulous observing a small commandment as you are observing a great one, for you do not know what the reward of each is. And this is written in Pirkei Avot. And now let's go forward with our section four. Let's speak about the righteous, more righteous than the Pharisees. Let's read Matthew 5 verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So the master said that unless the righteousness of his Talmudim exceeded that of the scribes and Pharisees, they could not enter the kingdom of heaven. To enter the kingdom of heaven means to enter the messianic era. There needs to be understood in conjunction with Yeshua's good news message, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If the nation of Israel repented at the time of the Moshiach Yeshua, when he was here on earth, they could have entered the messianic era at that time. So the Talmudim, his disciples, must have wondered how the Moshiach could expect them to reach a level of righteousness higher than Pharisees. The Pharisees were carefully observing even the smallest of the commandments. And the Moshiach Yeshua went on to explain exactly what he meant with the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, as is written in Matthew 5 until chapter uh, 7. So he takes a well-known commandment such as do not murder and do not commit adultery, and he reveals the deeper moral and ethical core behind the commandment. He gives specific examples by internalizing the prohibition against murder with a prohibition against anger, slander, and insult. He internalized the prohibition against adultery with a prohibition against lust. He hastens the sanctity of marriage with a prohibition on divorce for the sake of remarriage. And he also points on the prohibition on taking Hashem's God's name in vain by prohibiting oaths. So the Talmud warns that it is possible to be reprobate with the permission of the Torah. This means that it's possible to keep the commandments externally and still be a nasty, vile person. On some level, that might be true but it's not possible to be somebody who is given permission in this case uh, upon the Sermon on the Mount. So Yeshua's teaching reveal a moral, ethical intention behind the commandments and expose the internal uh, way the heart of man has been deviated itself throughout the ages. It cuts past external appearances and plants the inner meaning of the Torah deep in the heart of man. So the Sermon on the Mount does not mean that a Talmud, a Talmud, I'm sorry, 
never becomes angry with his brother or sister or an occasion speaks words of insult like you fool sometimes it can happen that we do we do get wrong and the Moshiach knows that we do but he calls us to live out a higher standard of righteousness and even this section 4 is ended and there is a question and answer part that will be discussed through the week with your family and friends in your home meeting so let's go ahead with the focus uh, five we're going to speak about the meaning of the sermon Yeshua HaMashiach sets the, set, uh, the standard so high that some theologians and wishful thinkers have concluded that his teachings in the Sermon on the Mount were only meant to reveal human sin and our inadequacy. Inadequacy, I'm sorry. Demonstrating our inability to earn redemption based on our righteousness. According to this belief, Yeshua taught the Sermon on the Mount only to convict his Talmudin of their depravity and to convince them of their need for Hashem's grace and forgiveness. Therefore, the Sermon on the Mount was meant to contradict the ideas of the Pharisees who taught that a man must earn his redemption, his salvation through his deeds, his mitzvot, his works. Is that what the Sermon on the Mount really means? And did Yeshua simply intend to prove to his disciples that their good works could never merit eternal life? This interpretation is problematic because it reverse, reverses the teaching of Yeshua, reducing it to a moral beating designed only to pursue it, pursue it as that we cannot possibly live up to Hashem, God's standards. It encourages a person to actually, actually disregard Yeshua's high standards while saying, Thank Hashem, I'm saved, I'm redeemed by grace and not by works. Besides, it's based on false assumptions about Judaism. In fact, the Pharisees also taught that all men are sinful and that human beings need a shame, God's grace and forgiveness. Judaism, Judaism, I'm sorry, does not teach that man must earn his redemption or salvation through the perfect performance of mitzvot, good deeds, good works. Instead, Judaism teaches that human beings are sinful and must rely on Hashem's forgiveness and mercy for redemption, to receive redemption and salvation in the Moshiach. According to the Jewish teaching, a person should repent, as we know through Teshuvah, confess sins and trust in the mercy of our Heavenly Father. So Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, was not morally brow-beating his Talmudim, his disciples, to impress upon them their human depravity. <clears throat> he warned that the Talmudim, or the Talmud himself, who hears his words but does not do them, is like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. Yeshua never intended the Sermon on the Mount to answer the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's not about going to heaven when you die. Amen. Instead, the real intention behind Yeshua's teaching is an urgent call to repentance. He wanted to inspire people to change how they conducted themselves and how they fulfilled their religious obligations. He wanted his teachings to inspire a repentance movement that, couple, that could ripple out from East Talmudim to the rest of the Jewish nation, to Israel. Amen. Thereby reversing the evil decree that could ripple out 
I'm sorry, the, the evil decree that hung over the generation and averting a looming national catastrophe. catastrophe. He had the same goal as that of Yohanan, as we, as we know him as a John the Immerser, warned indeed the axe is already laid at the root of the trees, so every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the lake of fire, or into the fire in this case. Luke 3 verse 9. So the Messianic era was at hand, but Yeshua HaMashiach knew that his generation would forfeit the opportunity to enter the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom Hashem had prepared through him. If they did not change curse through repentance. A single text from the Torah summarizes the Moshiach's approach to kingdom living. You shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that he may be well with you and that you may go in and possess the good land which the Lord swore to give, I'm sorry, swore to give your fathers. And this is written in Deuteronomy 6 verse 18. In apostolic teaching, the words go in and possess the good land allude to entering the messianic era. That means the kingdom of heaven in the final redemption we are getting there amen <laughs> so we pray for this for all of our brothers and sisters all the jews and to be redeemed in the moshiach yeshua in this time this is a time of revival for israel in israel and in the diaspora and we pray for this every day and this is the end of the section five so also for this section we have a question and answers part that is going to be part of your home groups meeting now let's talk about uh, antithesis statements in Matthew 5 21 and 22 you have heard that the ancients were told but I say to you. So Matthew 5, 21, 48 contains six so short expositions in which Yeshua introduces a commandment of Torah saying, you have heard that it was said, after which he has, but I say to you. So theologians refer to them as the six antithesis statements, implying that the Moshiach gave these teachings in antithesis to the Torahs, the, to the Torah of Moses. That is to say that Yeshua introduced an old obsolete commandment of the Torah and then contradicted it with his new teaching. According to this interpretation, Yeshua replaced the Torah with his own new revelation. Yeshua did not offer antithesis to the commandments in the Torah, first of all. He offered interpretations. He expounded, he expounded upon the text of the Torah like any rabbi of his day by revealing the Torah's intentions and working out its implications, far from contradicting the Torah or abolishing it. He fulfilled it by dispelling misconceptions and establishing its core principles all the more firmly. Let's speak about murder, anger, and insult. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to, to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says you fool, shall be guilty enough to go, to go into the fiery hell. This is written in Matthew 5 verse 22. So the Torah says you shall not murder. This is written in Exodus 20 verse 13. But the Moshiach Yeshua says that anger, hatred, insult, and public humiliation are compared with murder and comparable to murder. He warned 
his disciples that martyr begins with anger in the heart of man. The Apostle Yohanan, John, explained that the Moshiach's words as follows, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. First, Yohanan um, 3 verse 15. Then there is uh, a writing that is called the Didesh that interprets the teaching as follows. Be not prone to anger, for anger leads the way to murder, neither jealous nor quarrelsome, nor of hot temper, for out of all these martyrs are engender. So the sages regarded publicly shaming or embarrassing a person as a grievous sin. In the no longer extant gospel of the Hebrews, Yeshua HaMashiach says that one of the most serious sins a man can commit is that of vexing his brother. In fact, in the gospel, which is according to the Hebrews, which the Nazarenes are accustomed to read, among the worst crimes is Seth E. who has distressed the spirit of his brother. And this is part of the Jerome commentary on Ezekiel. So anger, quarreling, and public insults may be punished, punished in a court of law on earth, such as the local court Beitim, or even the high court Sanhedrin. But ultimately, if not in a court on earth, a person who publicly shames and insults another must pay the penalty of character assassination in the fire of hell. And this is coming from a rabbinic teaching contains similar sentiments. In fact, in Talmud, we read, He who publicly shames his neighbor is a thaw he shed blood. Better that a man throw himself into a fiery furnace than publicly put his neighbor to shame. This is written in the Talmud. So does Yeshua mean that anyone who insults his neighbor will go to hell? Not in the eternal damnation sense. Jewish theology viewed Gehenna as a temporary place of punishment in which souls might suffer for their sins where they awaited for the, uh, the final judgment, which was to occur after the resurrection. In rabbinic teachings, like the Moshiachs, however, the high standard of Torah and harsh sentences of the heavenly court are always counterbalanced by the power of repentance and the scope of grace, God's grace, forgiveness, kindness, and mercy. Let's go now ahead with the speaking about sacrifice and reconciliation. We read in Matthew 5, 23 and 24, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Amen. This is very important to remember when we are wrong with somebody. To reconcile with our brothers and sisters before we go and worship the Lord or ask something to Hashem. According to the Talmud, the temple was destroyed and the Jewish people went into exile for the sin of baseless hatred against one another. Yeshua foresaw the, that inevitable outcome and tried to avert, avert the disaster. His gospel message urged the generation to repent. He warned his Talmudin that anger and insult were lesser forms of murder, hatred in the heart. He called upon the people to prioritize love for one another. So the Moshiach offered a practical application to his teaching about anger and insult. He told his Talmudim, his disciples, that before they go to the temple to make a sacrifice, they should first make peace with an offended brother or sister. 
A person should not attempt to approach a sham until seeking forgiveness from one's neighbor for any wrongdoing. This is in keeping with the rabbinic maxim that a sham forgives sins committed against him but cannot forgive sins committed against others on behalf of the victims. So make friends with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way, so that your opponent may not hand you over the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. In Matthew 5, 25-26, Yeshua says, Truly, I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. So Yeshua compared an offended brother to a creditor, as he compared the offender to a debtor, facing the possibility of the of a debtor's prison. The Gentile courts of the Roman Empire would routinely, routinely imprisoned people which were not paying taxes to them until they could pay the ones which were creditors of their taxes or payment. If a creditor pressed the charge in a Gentile court of law, he could have the delinquent debtor thrown into a debtor's prison where he would remain until his debt was paid down to the last cent. So, being in prison meant die in prison the majority of time. The wise people, which didn't want to become debtor, wanted to negotiate a settlement with his creditor before their creditors before the matter reached such a court. Yeshua advised that a man who had offended his neighbor go plead for forgiveness from the offended party, like somebody who is in debt attempting to settle his debt. On your way there, make an, an effort to settle with him so that he may not drag you before the judge and that the judge turn you over to the officer and the officer throw you into prison. Luke 12:58. If the sinner does not settle the matter with, his, with the offended party, he will eventually have to settle it in the heavenly court of law. The same principle applied to the whole generation and their baseless hatred for one another. If they did not learn to reconcile, they were sure to go into exile to pay the debt of sin against one another. So this accords with what is written in the Talmud, the son of David will not come until the last cent is gone from the purse. As it's written in Matthew 5, verse 25-26, and Luke 12, verses 58-59, there are many words which can be studied during the week. You can take a look at and give the meaning and take a look at your uh, student guide to remember about the meaning in Hebrew. Also, there is a part uh, regarding the section 6 uh, questions and answers. And now let's talk about the adultery of the heart. As it's written in Matthew 5, 27, 28, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman just lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So 40 years before the destruction of, temp of the temple, Yeshua proclaimed a gospel of repentance to his generation. He said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He warned them that if they did not repent, they would face a terrible judgment. He called upon the Jewish people of his day to turn from the sins of immorality and adultery. 
So the Moshiach also warned his Talmidim about a different type of adultery, an adultery that takes place in the mind. Do not follow after your own heart and your own eyes. Numbers 15 verse 39. If a man gazes lustfully, lustfully, I'm sorry, on another man's wife, he has already committed adultery in his heart. That is to say, in his thoughts and intentions. The concern lies with the secret violation of another's marriage. And the Torah says, you shall not commit adultery in Exodus 20 verse 14. So the Torah defines adultery as sexual relations with a betrothed or married woman. On the basis of the Torah's words, a man shall be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. It's written in Bereshit, Genesis 2.24. Yeshua broadened the scope of the definition to include any breach of monogamous fidelity. He thought he taught that even impure th uh, thoughts could constitute adultery of the heart, like mental sin. James, the brother of Moshiach, says, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. James 1 verse 15. The apostle transmitted the same principle to the early Gentiles, Talmudians. My child, be not a lustful one, for lust leads the way to sexual immorality. And this is written in a writing we already mentioned that is called uh, Didash 3 verse 3. It's a Gentile scripture coming from the Catholic Church. And you can find in your Torah learning researches. <laughs> so let's go ahead and let's talk about Yeshua's warning. Yeshua's warning is consistent with similar warnings in uh, Jewish literature. The wisdom of uh, the book of Sirach. Um, uh, says veil your eyes before a beautiful woman look not at another one's beauty that does not belong to you the second century sage Raish Lakish seems to echo the words of Yeshua you must not suppose that only he who has committed the crime with his body is called an adulterer if he commits adultery with his eyes, he is also called an adulterer. And this is part of Midrash Rabbah. So sinful imagination leads to desire, desire to intend, intend to pursue, pursue to deed. This is to have you know how difficult it is for a person to turn back from one to another, to the other, I'm sorry. And this is called, uh, this is found in Kala Rabati. So the punishment uh, for committing adultery is death. Adultery of the heart is not the same as actual adultery. A Torah court of law on earth has no jurisdiction to try a man or sentence him for merely gazing on another man's wife. Instead, Yeshua warned that, that Hashem could punish adultery of the heart. In Matthew 5, verse 29 and 30. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So an ancient explanation of the prohibition on adultery says that the Hebrew verbs for to commit adultery, tinaf, in Exodus 20, 14, consists of four letters. In order to warn lest you commit adultery with a hand or with a foot or with your eye, or with your, with your heart, 
This is written in Midrash Agadol. Likewise, Yeshua advised his Talmudim to cut off the offending hand, foot, or eye that leads them to commit adultery of the heart rather than suffer punishment for the transgression in Gehenna. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell, into the lake of fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lane than having your two feet to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of Hashem, our God, with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Mark 9, verse 43-48 In no sense should the Master's word, words be taken literally to imply that a person should maim himself or herself. Rabbi Yeshua employed rabbinic traditional scriptural references coming from the sages of his day to express the severity of the sin. Adultery of the heart does spiritual damage to a man's souls on the same caliber uh, as if he had physically maimed himself. Paul says, flee morality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral sin man sins against his own body. And this is written in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 18. So Yeshua's words regarding hand, foot, and eye have a close parallel in rabbinic literature. The school of Rabbi Ishmael thought you shall not commit adultery implies you shall not practice masturbation either with a hand or with foot. In this case, um, in the case of men, it ought to be cut off. Cain, come, I'm sorry, come and hear what was taught. Rabbi Tarfon said if his hand fondled his private member, let his hand be cut off below his belly. It is preferable that his hand be cut off than that he should go down into the pit of destruction. And this is coming from the Talmud. So the sages of the Talmud argue about whether or not Rabbi Tarfan meant that a man's hand or member should actually be cut off. They ask, is, it, is this rule about cutting off the offending hand meant literally or is it merely an execration to indicate the severity of the sin? The Talmud concludes, since maiming oneself is an even more serious sin, completely forbidden in Judaism, the saying must be understood merely as an execration to indicate the severity of the sin. So too, we should understand the words of both Rabbi Yeshua and Rabbi Tarfon in the same sense. Rabbinic writing intended to convey the gravity of a sin too easily excused or disregarded. In any case, Yeshua seemed to side with Judaism regarding the prohibition on masturbation, especially if executed as an act contributing to adultery of the heart. One should not misunderstand him to mean that perpetrators are cons uh, consigned to eternal damnation. Final judgment is not in view here whatsoever. Instead, Yeshua tried to impress upon his generation the weight, the weight of the secret sins of the heart, sins that a person ordinarily thinks no one knows and for which he or she 
anticipates no consequence. Consequence, I'm sorry. <laughs> Yeshua warned us to think again. In rabbinic teachings like the Moshiach's, however, the high standards of Torah and harsh sentences of the heavenly court are always counterbalanced by the power of repentance and the scope, the purpose of Hashem's grace, forgiveness, kindness, and mercy. So the Sermon on the Mount presents a mountain of righteousness too high to climb if we were to suppose that it must be fulfilled to merit eternal life. Baruch Hashem Yeshua was, was not teaching about how to go to heaven when you die. Instead, the Sermon on the Mount collects Yeshua's words about the path of repentance. It's the long version of his good news message. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. He knew that his Talmudim needed more than just an external facade of piety and religious behavior if they were going to influence their generation for repentance, reverse the judgment against the nation of Israel, and Hasher in the Messianic era. The job description has not changed. The Sermon on the Mount describes the standard of righteousness to which every true Talmud disciple of Yeshua should aspire. Perhaps the mountain is too high and we will never reach its pinnacle, but that's not an excuse to abandon the ascent. And here is the end of the section 7 and of our lesson for today. So there is also for this section a question and answer part that uh, is going to be part of your weekly home meeting and there is also a vocabulary and keywords and terms at the end of each lesson that I would suggest you to take a look at and learn and also there is a, a list of primary sources for each lesson that explains where we uh, take our resources for our teaching. And before we finish, I want to conclude in prayer. So, Avinu Malkenu Abba Father, we ask you to really digest what we have received today and that we might expand our community, extend our learning throughout our Mishpachot, congregational members, ministry members, families outside of the ministries, whatever they are, Father, in person, online, that all of them will be called to be united as one in the Moshiach of Israel, Yeshua. Amen. In your name, Yeshua. Blessings in Hashem, Hashem Yeshua, Amen. And for any questions, please contact us. And to get connected with us, please write to us uh, through your um, email and uh, also through the social media. Shabbat Shalom to all of you.